0: This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Damon Fletcher, the CFO of Tableau, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 481.
1: About two years ago, we decided that, that it would be good to bring in outside capital from potentially a, a longer-term strategic investor, private equity investor who could add strategic value to the company. Clearly, some of our uh, investors had the opportunity basically to cash out at a nice 35% return on where the stock was at that time, or they, uh, many of them chose to stay in the company and so that they could uh, potentially get an even bigger return down the road if the company were to go private or if we were to sell to a larger company for acquisition. Uh, so I think that was a, a, a very nice structure and was quite elegant for our current investors and allowed them to either participate in the short term or uh, participate in the long
0: term. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Mike Mushral. CFO of Siren, a cloud-based internet security technology company that Warburg Pincus invested some funds with recently. We'll let Michael tell the tale and share with us his unique CFO journey. We begin after these words from our sponsor. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, at planful.com.
2: Hello, we're speaking to Michael Weishra, CMO of Siren, spelled with a C. It's a cloud-based internet security company providing security as a service. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. As always, we begin with asking our guests to look back for us, and to reflect a little bit about the career experiences they feel prepared them for a finance leadership role. What, what comes to mind for you? Well,
1: I, I would say that I'm a very non-traditional CFO. I started my career as an electrical engineer, and, uh, and my first jobs were basically doing software development in the telecom industry. Uh, But what got me in the direction of uh, becoming a finance uh, leader was was really first and foremost uh, going to business school. So I attended Harvard Business School. And then coming out of business school, I I, I started my career as a management consultant where I did a lot of financial modeling and forecasting and working with larger clients, uh, putting together spreadsheets and, and financial tools like that. And then from there, I, I also did some investment banking, where I uh, focused on clients, uh, helping to sell clients, doing M&A advisory services. Uh, again, did a lot of valuation, forecasting, and, and, and spreadsheet analysis. But it also helped me um, um, gain some skills in investor relations by going out and, and, and pitching the companies uh, that we were trying to sell. And then. Um, And then when I joined my current company at Siren, uh, I started uh, in in the role of corporate development and financial planning and analysis. So I was was really focused on looking at acquisitions, uh, integrating acquisitions into the company, and doing some forecasting and and budgeting associated with those integrations. So even before I came to CFO, I I think I had a
2: very well-rounded financial background. Your path to the office, we would... Likely, call the business development path. Do you think that fits your path? That, that title, or how do you look? Yeah, at it? you do. Yes, I do. Yeah. 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 I, I want to go back to your first chapter because I think it's really interesting. You were in electrical engineering. Was that uh, you went uh, to undergrad to study that? Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. What what led you there? Why did you have a? I mean, was it always an interest uh, in in your early years in high school, or uh, what led you there? Yeah. So when I was growing
1: up, I was always very interested in science and technology, uh, and and of course math, which were my favorite uh, courses in, in school. And then uh, when I was in high school in the late '80s, uh, um, computers were starting to get uh, to get popular as well. So I started to do some computer science classes. And I just felt like the engineering path was was um, more suited to towards my my personal goals, but I always also had an interest in in the business side of things. And so, after spending a few years as an electrical engineer, I felt like I wanted to get more well-rounded and uh, and and see other parts of the business other than just the pure technical
2: side. So, so you just applied to Harvard Business School, and they quickly let you in. Um, that, was there a restlessness on your part here? I mean, um, or a frustration back at that earlier period, or, or not
1: necessarily? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I was part of a larger organization. I worked for a company called uh, Nortel, which had tens of thousands of employees, and and I felt like uh, I felt like I was a, a small piece of a, of a much bigger uh, organization. And so there was some frustration that I didn't have as much of an impact in the organization as I would have liked, and I didn't have exposure to the different parts of the business. So working in a technical role, I, I only had a small sliver of of insight into the, what the rest of the business was doing, and I, and I wanted to get exposure to the sales and marketing and, and finance parts of the organization, but
2: I was just very specialized in my skill set at that time. I, I know that when you graduate, you join a uh, or, or you were joining a, prior to graduation, even a, a management consulting firm. PRTM is a pretty well-respected firm. Um, but my question is, is: Did you enjoy that type of work? It's it's uh, um, and and I'm curious as to when finance uh, became increasingly part of your world. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my I I really enjoyed my time with
1: PRTM. Um, I think what was really exciting to me was the fact that as a management consultant, I was brought into different companies uh, and got to on on different projects, and I got to see kind of the pros and cons of of each each type of company. And it's you know typical projects would length would would vary in length from four to maybe eight months in duration. And so, in a, in a few years, you could get to see um, a, a, the way different companies operate, and, and 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 basically take away some of the pros and cons of each of those companies, and then apply that to your next project or your your next role. Um, as a management consultant, I I, I got involved often in, in different types of, of of projects. Some of them were Uh, related to rolling out new products and services, some of them more related to cost savings initiatives within the organization, or improving the ROI on on certain projects, and each each one of those projects would typically have a financial modeling component to it, uh, where you had to be very proficient in putting together Excel spreadsheets and forecasts and and models uh, looking out into the future. And I think that was really
2: my, my first exposure to getting into the, to the finance role. Thank you for uh, permitting me to ask you a few extra questions there about your, your early years. Uh, so often the traditional first chapter is a is a stint in public accounting. So when um, we come upon a finance leader uh, that has such an uh, interesting first chapter as yours, sort of a transitionary chapter uh, in the early years, I think it's always worth sharing. So thank you. Now I want to ask you about Siren. Uh, tell us about uh, these types of offerings. Let's let's find out what type of offering this is first of all. Sure. So Siren is a
1: is a publicly traded uh, cloud internet security company. Uh, we have several different offerings that that are all cloud-based uh, security offerings it, that include email security, web security, DNS security, and what we call cloud sandboxing. And our our technology is used by millions and millions of end users, and we have some very large, well-known customers like Microsoft, Google, uh, Checkpoint, and McAfee, who are using our technology as part of their products and services. And we deliver all of our uh, services as a SaaS-based subscription model, where essentially you have to have a real-time connection to our data centers in order to get the latest updates of uh, of the latest threats that happen anywhere in the world, and so through our partners, our, our customers, uh, we see billions and billions of transactions, security transactions every day, and we, because it's a centralized cloud type of environment, we can react in, in seconds to the latest outbreaks anywhere in the world, and so our our differentiation is really that we can protect you uh, from the latest or the latest phishing attacks or the latest uh, uh, spam uh, outbreaks
2: faster than any other company out there. Now, this company has, uh, since you've been there, it's rebranded. Tell, tell us a little bit about uh, the path it's been on and sort of uh, uh, rebranding itself and whether it's recreated some of its offerings or reinvented portions of the business.
1: Sure. So when I first joined the company, the company was known as CalmTouch. Uh, and Comtouch was established in the early 1990s in Israel. It's uh, an Israeli registered company. It went public back in 1999 under a different business model. At the time Comtouch was really focused on providing hosted email uh so- solutions and we were the company was not really in the security uh, uh area. Uh, but uh then um A lot of the customers that that Comtouch was providing early service to were uh, a lot of the dot-com companies back in the late 90s and early 2000s, and that market obviously went through a tremendous overhaul when when the dot-com bubble burst, and so the company really had to reinvent itself uh, in the the early 2000s to the the mid-2000s, and uh, the company had uh, developed some patented technology uh, to deal with uh, spam uh, detection. Uh, it's a patented technology called the Recurrent Pattern Detection, where uh, basically we could detect different patterns from emails that were that were being sent anywhere in the world, and we used that as our first security offering to be able to uh, block spam outbreaks uh, for our customers and for our partners. So when I joined the company in 2011, the company was still known as, as Calm Touch. Our business model was primarily focused on selling these technology components in an OEM type of business model. In other words, we were licensing the technology to integrate into other company solutions. And uh, in the economics in an OEM business model are are quite low uh, um, in terms of the value chain that you're that you're trying to capture. So we were providing underlying technology services that. At a few cents per user per year, uh, whereas the, the companies that we were selling to were developing security services that they offered to customers for uh, tens of dollars per users per year per user per year. So, so we were getting a very small piece of the pie. So, in uh, around 2014 was when the company rebranded itself as Siren, and shortly after that, we we launched our own cloud security offering directly to enterprise customers. Uh, which we developed to provide email security and web security through a SaaS-based multi-tenant, multi-service platform. And and that's also when we moved up the value chain. Uh, So instead of licensing technology for uh, a few cents per user per year, we're selling SaaS subscription services that are uh, between $10 and $50 per user per year. So literally uh, two orders of magnitude higher Uh, economics uh, in in terms of a per-user standpoint. So for the past three to four years, we've been really focused on building out that SaaS enterprise business, which we call our enterprise uh, services business, and and it's become our fastest-growing piece of the business, Uh, although we still rely very heavily on our OEM business because it generates the majority of our security data Uh, that goes through our infrastructure and allows us to provide better protection and detection capabilities to our end customers.
2: So your rise uh, on the ladder from corporate development executive, really, to uh, vice president of financial planning and analysis, and then into um, the finance leadership office uh, sort of parallels this company's move to this high-value security uh, space, a- Am I uh, correct, or h- how would you uh, characterize yes, uh, it? I think that's a fair characterization. When I joined the company, we did
1: have a different CEO and CFO who were based in Israel, and uh, we have uh, substantially increased our operational footprint in the U.S., and uh, I was the first employee in the Washington, D.C. area where we opened an office, and, and our CEO uh, uh, was also based in this area. Uh, who replaced the previous CEO. And so um, our goal was really to establish uh, more of a a direct enterprise business that was focused on growing the business in the U.S. and in Europe, and and we established our our U.S. headquarters here in in the Washington, D.C. area area in McLean, Virginia.
2: Now, as you uh, take on sort of the leadership role uh, did you have ideas as to how you'd want to maybe change how finance was organized or maybe you were looking to add some additional skills in some area? Uh, anything come to mind when, when uh, I ask you about your your arrival in the CFO office and how uh, you'd like to organize things? So so I think there are two key changes that we made. I
1: think the, the previous CFO uh, was, under the impression, or uh, had the had the intent of centralizing all of the finance operations into one uh, central headquarters here in the U.S., even though we had oper- operations in Israel, in Germany, in Iceland, um, and and he in an ideal world he wanted to be able to have everybody locally here in one office and remotely manage the finance uh, operations in each of those countries. But what we quickly learned. Is that uh, when you have, you know, 50 to 100 employees in each of these countries, there are local requirements in terms of uh, dealing with payroll, dealing with suppliers, dealing with banks in each of those locations, and it wasn't really realistic to uh, centralize all the finance functions under under one location. And so, uh, we, I ended up keeping the, the the key finance staff in Israel and Germany and in Iceland, uh, but what we did do is we centralized all the corporate uh, finance roles and the corporate consolidation functions here in the U.S., and, and so basically on a quarterly basis when we roll up the numbers, we do that from the U.S., but we rely on our on our local finance staff there. And then the other key thing that, that I saw the need for was uh, because I did not have a, a CPA background or an accounting background. Uh, I did need to bring in an expert to help me out uh, with dealing with our auditors and dealing with uh, the accounting standards and I was very fortunate to hire uh, a corporate controller who then became our uh, our VP of finance here and he came directly from our auditors so he was a former uh, EY auditor uh, on our account in Israel and so he knew the company already coming into the company and uh, and obviously knew the accounting standards and, and requirements for US GAAP and and SEC filing requirements, and so on. And so by making a key hire like like uh, like I did, I was able to uh, rely on him, and, and we were able to take the,
2: the finance organization to the next level. Now, tell us uh, about the metrics that are top of mind for you today as you're trying to track the company's performance day-to-day, week-to-week. What are, what are the metrics that are top of mind for you? Mm-hmm. So... As I mentioned earlier, we're trying to grow our enterprise SaaS
1: business. And so uh, the, the things I'm looking for are indications of growth uh, in, the, in that new business. And so we look from a sales perspective, we look at the enterprise bookings uh, in terms of new business that is coming in and the annual contract value associated with those with those uh, new, uh, new customers. So we track an AC, the ongoing ACV of the business and make sure that we're on the right trajectory of, of growing that business and that our that our sales team is, is doing the, a good job of, of booking new business. And then from a customer retention standpoint, we're also concerned with uh, making sure that the customers are happy and they stay with us uh, and renew at a high renewal rate and that the lifetime value of the customer is increasing. So a lot of times what will happen is a customer will join us and they'll consume one of our services, and, and over time, they 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 uh, become happy with our services, and we're able to upsell them to additional services, and and that increases the stickiness of the customer and makes sure that they stay with us, uh, and increases the, the lifetime value of the customer. So, and then from an operational standpoint, we are investing very heavily in our business. Uh, when I joined the company, it was it was very profitable on a percentage basis, but we knew that in order to Move into the enterprise business, which was a new space for us, that we were going to have to invest heavily in sales and marketing, and invest heavily in additional product development. So we we have turned a profitable business into a, a cash burning business. But I, but I look at the cash burn, and I and I try to monitor that and, and and keep on top of that on a quarterly basis to make sure that we're within our operating plan and that we're not uh,
2: investing too heavily in, in those in those areas. Earlier in your career, were you exposed to communicating with investors and analysts in that part of the business? Is that something that you, uh, you arrived there with some experience, or is this learning on the job?
1: So it was a bit of both. Uh, when, I, when I worked as an investment banker, part of my role was to uh, market companies, uh, in order to help sell companies, so we were we were oftentimes hired by smaller companies to help sell the the, the firm to another larger uh, acquirer, and so you'd have to put together an investment deck as to why why an acquirer may want want to be interested in acquiring your client, and and oftentimes that involved the pitching the opportunity to the corporate development folks or the finance folks at the larger acquiring companies or even a private equity firm. So that essentially was my start into investor relations type of activity. But when I joined the company, when I joined SIREN and and became a public company CFO, uh, the the whole IR piece of it became a, a job requirement. Of course, we do our quarterly earnings calls, and then we also interact with the analysts who follow the company, and uh, we participate in investor relations activities to bring in new investors into the the company as well. And so uh, it was a bit of a learning on the job, but uh, now that I've been at it for over five years, I think it's something that's uh, become second nature to me.
2: Uh, Originally or initially, were you surprised how much time that took of your day at times? yeah absolutely i mean especially since
1: uh you know different different investors have different uh, uh perceptions of 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 how much information that they they can get directly from the company and some some investors even if they're small investors feel like they they have the right to call up the company and ask for a status update or uh, or try to set up a call directly with the c f o to try to figure out out what's going on in the company. But as a public company, we have to be very careful about the full disclosure rules and and Reg FD and make sure that we're not sharing information with any one investor that we're not sharing with all of our investors. Uh, But it is is a time-consuming activity, Uh, uh, but there are certain things that we're able to say and other things that we can only talk about when we're in a broader
2: audience, like on our quarterly earnings calls. Now I have to believe uh, this being a subscription-based uh, uh, company. Now that that, in fact, one of the non-financial metrics you pay close attention to clearly would be customer attrition or something related to measuring customers. Are there others? Are there other areas of non-financial metrics that you're you're looking at, maybe related to employees or or what have you?
1: Yes, there are. So there, on the operational side of things, uh, because we're a a security company um we you know part of our value proposition is to the customers is to protect them from from different types of security outbreaks and and so when you catch all the threats properly um there's no issue but if you were to um alert a customer either there's a false positive or a false negative uh, in terms of uh, a, 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 an email threat or a a piece of malware or a piece of ransomware, those false positives and false negatives, from, from a customer standpoint, can be very uh, impactful. So we, we're trying to eliminate any false positives and false negatives, and just make sure that we detect only the real threats that could impact a, a, a customer's business. Um, and you're right on the employee retention aspect of it; uh, is it, also another key metric that we that we work on. Uh, you know our Our largest R&D uh, office is based in Israel. It's a very uh, competitive technical environment in terms of hiring and and retaining folks. And so our ability to hang on to technical talent, especially in Israel, is, is definitely a key.
0: When we come back, CFO Mike Mashral shares his finance strategic moment.
2: Well, we'd like to ask for what we refer to as a finance strategic moment, and this is where, uh, and I'm sure you've had many of these during the course of your career, but where uh, in your role as a finance leader, you're able to see an opportunity or a risk, given your lines of sight into the organization and the numbers. Does anything come to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment?
1: Sure. So. So we've done uh, multiple capital raises throughout my tenure here in the past five years. So we've done public, uh, secondary public offerings uh, where we brought in about twenty-five million dollars in, in two different public offerings, and we've we've raised capital through convertible notes, uh, which uh, which are also a way to uh, bring capital into the business. But uh, about two years ago, we decided that uh, it would be good to bring in outside capital from. Uh, potentially a longer-term strategic investor, a private equity investor who could add strategic value to the company. And so uh, we did a private placement with a with a fund called Warburg Pincus out of New York. And Warburg Pincus is a, a well-known private equity investor. They're a long-term growth investor. They have over $44 billion under management. And we initially took in about $20 million from them for a 20% stake in the, in the company. Uh, But uh, Warburg was interested in investing more in the company, uh, but we weren't ready yet to sell the company to go completely private. So what we did is we structured a transaction that would allow Warburg Pincus to acquire up to 75% of the outstanding shares of Siren so that we would remain as a public company. And and, uh, that would allow them to increase their ownership in the company. And it would also allow some of our existing investors the opportunity to either sell their shares to Warburg for a, for a nice return or if they view if they wanted to participate in the long term uh, um, uh, potential upside in the in the shares alongside of Warburg Pincus they could choose not to sell their shares so uh shortly after we did the the uh, the pipe investment. Warburg did a public uh, share tender offer at about a 35 percent premium to where we were currently trading, and um, and their intention was to acquire up to 75 percent of the company, and they they got up to 52 percent of the company. So clearly, some of our uh, investors had the opportunity basically to cash out at a nice 35 percent return on where the stock was at that time, or they. Uh, many of them chose to stay in the company and, and ride it with Warburg so that they could uh, potentially get an even bigger return down the road if the company were to go fully private or if we were to sell to a larger company through an acquisition. Uh, so I think that was a, a, a very nice structure that was quite elegant for our current investors and it allowed them to either participate in short term or uh, participate in the long term.
2: Wow. <laughs> interesting chapter thank you uh, thank you for sharing that we're gonna jump to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions now about uh, intended to inspire and mentor future finance leaders what is it that's exciting you about finance and business now today what is it so I so I think
1: first of all being part of the security industry it's a very high growth industry uh, there's a there's a lot of uh, new threats that are coming out all the time. There's a lot of new startups in the company, in, in the industry that are that are popping up everywhere. I mean, this week in San Francisco is is the annual RSA conference where uh, where many of the security companies go to exhibit uh, their their offerings. And there are over a thousand companies in, in the security space. So the fact that Siren has an ability to participate in this exciting space. And, and really ride the upside of, of that I think is very exciting. And then from a finance standpoint, um, we uh, we went through a, a transition over the past year. Uh, initially uh, we were considered a foreign private issuer on, on the NASDAQ, so that means uh, that we would file 20F annual reports. Uh, and now that Warburg that Pincus is a majority owner in the company, we're considered a, a domestic issuer on, on NASDAQ, and, and therefore we're subject to the typical filing requirements of a 10-K annual report and, and 10-Q quarterly reports. So for us, internally, uh, we're getting to learn the, the new filing requirements and, and the different accounting standards, and it's it's a change in the company, but it also shows that the company is growing up a little bit and becoming a, a bigger player in the industry.
2: What do you wish someone had told you uh, as you started your CFO a tour of duty. As you stepped in that office the first time, with all the responsibilities of finance leadership, what is it that you wish someone had uh, whispered in your ear or provided to you with?
1: So I, so I think, uh, I think the one of the things that I learned over the past few years is that uh, you, you you can never predict uh, where the market is, is going in terms of the. The, the shares of the, of the stock market. Um, you know, the investor relations aspect of my job is is an important one, um, and, and we do spend a lot of time um, focusing on that. But at the same time, you have to run the company as if it were your own private company, and, and not really worry about the share price. So I, I think if somebody were were to advise me in the beginning to to focus on fundamentals and and not worry too much about um, you know, uh, quarterly investments or quarterly earnings calls, and and our and our investor relations aspect of it, and just focus on the fundamentals. I think that would have been uh, uh, some good advice.
2: Do you have a personal habit or a routine that you believe has contributed to your professional success? Um, I do. I
1: I think so. You know, I I'm a, I like to exercise very regularly, and uh, in fact. I I was the one who chose where the office location is here in in the DC area, and it's relatively close to my house, so that I can run and bike to work, and 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 I find that that uh, if I do that on a regular basis, it really gives me an opportunity to kind of clear my head and think about what my priorities are when I'm on my way into the office. So instead of sitting in traffic and and worrying and worrying about the traffic. Uh, if I'm doing a 45-minute run to work and, and basically clearing
2: my head before I get into work, I think it helps me focus. Right, just to, just to mention about the Washington, D.C. area, the balance of your career, you stayed there. You must have had opportunities or recruiters that wanted to relocate you. Uh, one would believe that you uh, like uh, staying in that geography. <laughs> yes, that's That's
1: true. I I did move here after I graduated from business school uh, and have been here for now for over 20 years. I think it's a nice area. Uh, It has a good balance of of, uh, things to do uh, outside of work. Um, I mean, the the, uh, economy here has remained very strong due to the government aspect of uh, of, of the the area, Um, but there's a lot of commercial business here as well. you know, that being said, it has gotten very congested and very busy over the uh, over the past few years. So, you know, stepping back to a smaller location maybe may be interesting as well. We'll we'll have to see what happens when Amazon uh, adds another 50,000 jobs to the area. Uh, but but uh, certainly that's going to add to the traffic and congestion here, and and perhaps even to the cost of the living.
2: Okay. Our final question: Over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as finance leader of Siren?
1: So, uh, so first and foremost, you know, we're, we're transitioning to to becoming the uh, domestic issuer, and so making sure that we get our filings in order with our with our 10K annual report and our quarterly uh, 10Q reports. Uh, we are also transitioning to a new ERP system this year. Uh, we've been on uh, SAP for uh, close to 10 years now, and it's it's gotten a little stale for us, and so we're migrating uh, over to a new, a new system that I think will help us grow uh, and be more flexible for us into, this, into the future. And then uh, uh, we're launching uh, two new products this year that I think could be very significant revenue growth drivers uh, in the second half of nineteen. And so uh, what we're really looking forward is uh, whether or not those uh, 15 product offerings are going to have the revenue impact there, and we hope that we uh, I
2: mean, going to be and we'll have to do it again. I forget about it. Michael Macherell, thank you for joining us on CFO Broadcast.